everyone. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast, where we engage with culture and equip the local church in faith and ministry. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the Communications Coordinator at High Point Church. During our current sermon series, The Next Good Thing, we'll be featuring interviews by Nick Gibson, our lead pastor, with different people each week to help us clarify the spiritual sickness we're grappling with right now. These people will take us one step deeper in our understanding of our emotional and spiritual need. Today, Nick is interviewing Sue Gruen, a member of our church and a licensed clinical social worker and therapist at Samaritan Counseling Center. As always, if you have any questions or feedback, email us at podcast at highpointchurch.org. Also, we'd love to hear your story of how God is transforming you and healing you during this series. We invite you to email that to us as well at podcast at highpointchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Hey everyone, this is Dick Gibson. I'm here with Sue Gruen. Sue is a counselor. She's trained in a bunch of different methodologies. She um, has a master's in social work from UW. She's been doing this for quite a long time. And she's a part of High Point Church. And um, we've been talking to her and consulting her for years in um, some of our pastoral counseling, things that we've been preparing for a trauma group we're hoping to start pretty soon and um, other things as well. So Sue, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks. Glad to be here, Nick. (laughs) Yeah. So we're going to talk th- this week on Sunday, we're going to be talking about healing from weakening wounds. That is like wounds that people have that just keep them from being what God wants them to be, being able to persevere in their life and love others. And that there are certain wounds that you really need to heal because they're really holding you back. Right. And that's kind of the focus of what we're talking about healing wise right now. Right. So I'm just going to ask you some questions and you should say what you think is the closest to the truth that we can understand right now. <laughs> okay. Should... All right. So, um, so just as an intro, um, wh- can you talk a little bit about how um, clinical counseling can function as a pathway to spiritual healing and emotional healing? I mean, I know that's what you feel like you're trying to do. Most of your clients are Christians. Right. How do you see yourself as as a participant in their spiritual journey, their walk with Christ? Okay. Um, well, actually, um, yeah, we try to integrate both the emotions and the spirituality and um, when I think of our role, I think of um, one of my favorite uh, books these days is Peter Scazzaro's Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And he has a quote where he says, it is impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. So I actually see my role as helping people to uh you know, learn to mature emotionally so that they can be at their peak spiritually. And so if somebody said to you, Sue, well, I thought if I just grew in Christ as I matured spiritually, one of the effects of that would be I would mature emotionally. And if you would be like, well, it may be not automatically, um, like how would you kind of. Kind of explain that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I know when I first started in counseling, I thought, oh, you know, I had all these clients who, you know, do their devotions and prayer daily. I mean, many of our people are even, you know, spiritual directors, elders, prayer intercessors, and so forth. But the the other thing is, um, uh, one well-known, he's probably retired by now, but a Madison um, area marriage counselor once said, by the age of 15, we all have a PhD in family and relationships. And our PhD is based on our personal 
family experiences. So if we grew up in an unsafe or abusive household, many of us have those practices and, you know, we think some of those behaviors are perfectly fine and we may be repeating them. And so um, even though- And so you would classify that stuff under our emotional lives? Yeah. That like all the cues and stuff that we learned and our the feelings we have in reaction to different social changes and all those like millions of little lessons we learned from infancy to, let's say, 15 years old. Yeah. That that, that kind of makes up the structure of our emotional lives. Um, quite a bit. Quite a bit. And there's another factor, too. Um, there's a Christian brain scientist named Dr. Caroline Leaf. And basically what she does is she did a 12-part series on mental health on ITBM. BN. I think it's um, Internet Trinity Broadcasting Network. And I'm not sure exactly what year it was. It may have been 2016. Maybe it was even earlier than that. But in her series, she started by saying, and uh, this would probably be very surprising to people, but um, she said only about 3 to 10% of all um, mental health and physical illnesses are actually things that we inherited. And the rest comes from um, our, our brains in the womb are truly designed in God's image and likeness. The, the infant brain is designed for everything to go back to love, joy, and peace. You know, it's, it's amazing. But then we get out into the sinful world and we you know, depending on how our family may have treated us, kids being mean to us in middle school, you know, sometimes a mean coach or a teacher, any number of things um, can affect our, our mental health. So she said there are two things that, that can cause uh, mental health problems. One are the things that we learned up through age 18 or so, and that is not our fault. <laughs> That was programmed into us. Um, the other things, the, the core is what she terms wrong choices, which certainly includes sin, but it may also include some other things that just aren't very smart choices, you know, like hanging around unsafe people or something like that. It's not really a sin, but it's not a smart thing to do because it's harmful for you. So, um, yeah, so she she says, and this has been helpful to a lot of my clients, she goes, um, you're not really responsible for what happened to you in your childhood and that is programmed in your mind up to age 18. But as soon as you become aware of it, you are morally responsible to begin to work on healing and changing those things. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really, really, really important point. That yeah. you're not responsible for what happened. Right. But as soon as you realize the effect that it had, you are responsible for what you do with the effect of it that resides inside of you. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's helpful because we didn't all start out with an equal slate. You know, so we may be harshly judging somebody who just really was programmed badly in their early years. Um, 
it's worse when abuse occurs or there is some kind of negligence up through age six while the brain is developing. Yeah. Yeah. And the, like the, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay. What, so when people tell you things, I'm sure you get this from time to time where people are like, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Like everything's about your childhood. Everything's about your family, blah, 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 blah. Right. Like people get mad. About um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I think, I think people do get frustrated with that because it's sort of like saying um, all these things you couldn't control, like define everything that you are. And and I think that people get frustrated by that, but I, is is kind of what what people are saying when they say that that you actually have no idea how much education you got when you were a baby. Like you thought you thought you were just learning kind of how to walk, exactly. and how to say some words, exactly. But you were actually were taking in millions and millions of data points, and you were constructing a whole conception of reality. Absolutely. And you learned, Absolutely. you learned more in the first six years of your life than you've learned since. Yes, and even fact- though you learned all these facts. The the ba- the young child is actually taking in the nature of reality and structuring it in their mind, right? In and an so, imaginative way. So if you grew up in this wild, chaotic reality, your view is that the world is very unsafe. People are not to be trusted, and furthermore, when this stuff happens up through age four, at that age, a child has what we call um, the something like the just life belief that if you do good things, you know, if you are a good person, only good things will happen to you. So therefore, a very young child who, for example, has a parent who beats them, internalizes deep in their primitive brain system that they are a bad person. And they really believe that. I can talk to somebody who's not dealt with this in their 40s or 50s, and they will say, well, part of me knows what God says, and part of me understands this. But part of me just feels like I am the lowest, you know, horrible human being on earth. And then I I know <laughs> that we're talking about the early childhood stuff that something happened and it isn't always a parent's fault um in fact if if um um well right because children as a child you interpret things like with the yeah. stuff you remember is your interpretation yes. of things as a child yes yes it's so not you can get reality <laughs> you know? right right yes yeah yeah i think that's i think that's helpful plus for people to know okay plus the other thing that you most people don't know is that our automatic responses Something happens, and if we jump right in with a response or an answer, that is coming from our our subconscious mind, which was largely programmed by the time we were age five or six. So I tell people, somebody says something and it makes you angry, and you do not learn to take a deep breath or step back or halt your response you may say or do something that sounds like a five or a six-year-old child. And this, this is no insult to the particular person. We're all wired the same way. <laughs> yeah, it is amazing how childish, fairly sophisticated adults can be. Oh, absolutely. Like, they're like pretty sophisticated most of the time. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, they're not. Like, you hear about like CEOs, they're like screaming at people. Yes. But they're like, they're good most of the time. And then all of a sudden, they're crazy and... You know, I, I, you see this with a lot of folks that like 
it's weird. Some, something just kind of like slips out well, and it's kind of weird. Well, mm-hmm. let, let me tell you what part of what's going on there. Okay. Um, God designed us so that when our heartbeat reaches 100 beats per minute. Okay. So if you're listening to somebody and you feel your heart going faster and faster, watch out. Because when it reaches 100 beats per minute, the prefrontal lobes of your brain, the part that thinks and does creative problem solving and connects with God, shuts down because your body is saying, okay, I'm in a crisis situation. And it goes into your deep, primitive, reactive, emotional part of your brain. So that's- right, that pre <laughs> that prefrontal cortex part that you, you're saying does that's also the part of you that says no to your impulses too, right? Like exactly your exactly. self control. Exactly. So if you get find yourself in this state, the very best thing when you find your heart beating fast is to call a timeout or a rewind and go off and pray and breathe, listen to calming music, whatever you need to do, exercise for about 20 minutes. Because once you're in that brain state, it takes 20 minutes at least for you to return to your logical, rational mind. And, so if you're having an yeah. argument with your spouse yes, and you're like, we need to take a break, 20 minutes is a good, at least 20 minutes well, is a they, good rule. Of they actually tell us, Tell people 30 minutes because it takes about 20 minutes to calm down, but the person may go off and go, well, he did this again. And and, you know, you're, you're still in that angry state. It's when you try to calm down, that it'll take 20 minutes. So give yourself. Yeah. Well, and then you might want to give yourself 10 minutes just to think rational thoughts once you've come down too, right? Exactly. Okay. As a lesson to teenagers, is this also true of arousal that once you get your heartbeat up over a hundred your prefrontal cortex stops saying no and you'll do other things that you wouldn't maybe do otherwise? You know, I haven't thought about that, but I, and I can't say for sure, but it makes sense okay. to me, Nick. <laughs> <You know? Okay. laughs> I never thought right, of it di- that way. Let's dive into some, some other stuff because I'm sure we're going to find all of this interesting. Yeah. Um, so we've had kind of quite a social storm in 2020 between the pandemic. Absolutely. Um, yeah. ra- issues related to racial injustice, demonstrations and riots even. Yeah. Um, the election. I mean, I, I talked to somebody just today who's like, I'm, I just stopped watching the news because it just feels so manipulative and I'm not really getting information and the whole thing just feels terrible. Oh. Um, I know people who have gotten election signs and put them on the property line pointing at the front door of their neighbors <laughs> because they think that they're voting for the other person. Oh no. You know? Oh no. It's just a really awful, it's just awful. Oh, I, and so, yeah, um, absolutely. Yep. And then of course there's always, there's a cumulative effect, right? There's, yes. There's all these things happening together, right? Yeah. So what kind of what kind of stuff? So if people are feeling kind of bad right now, yeah, uh, is that is that is that normal? I mean, is that what oh. you're are you seeing a lot of that? Well, um, it's, what oh. can you tell us about how things are going? Oh, I will tell you. I've been doing this work now, you know, um, since I got my LCSW and I'm, you know, doing the clinical mental health for about fourteen and a half years, and honestly. There are a few things I have seen this year that I have not seen before. First of all, I have clients who are very devout Christians and felt that they wanted to, you know, do the work of learning skills and, you know, things like that rather than taking a medication. 
And because everything is out of their control, many people have started taking an anti-anxiety medication and it's helping greatly. And I say, when you are in a situation that you cannot control and you find that your anxiety is at an extreme level, honestly, you need to take it because otherwise you're going to be taking this out on your your spouse and your kids or whoever's in the house with you. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And, and wouldn't you say there's also a kind of positive feedback loop where you're not feeling good, things are kind of bad, yeah. then you try to work on it, but then it gets worse and then you fail and then you're like disappointed in yourself. And then it get, that like medication may not be the solution right. in the long run, exactly. but it like, yeah, it kind of gets, it keeps it from feeding on itself exactly. so that you can kind of what, yeah, try um, to work with I, it. I personally don't like it, I would personally never recommend it as a long-term solution. Because first of all, mm-hmm. after a certain amount of time, the meds really kind of stop working. And yeah, and, yeah, I've heard yeah. that the, like the dendral, like the the little tendon, little stick out things on your brain cells. Yeah, like they start working yeah, around right. the inhibiting points. Yeah, yeah, and like after five or six years, it just they've just your brain just forms pathways around the inhibited pathways. Yeah, and and the drugs just don't work. Well, and furthermore. And somebody might get mad at this one, but one of the latest teachings I saw in trauma therapy said that um, Prozac in particular works and helps somebody feel better for about six months. And after six months, they will end up feeling worse than they did before they ever started taking it. Mm. So I, I do see, I mean, certainly in some postpartum things, although you have to take the right medication so it's not harming your infant if you're nursing and things like that. But in emergency situations, people need to take something to calm them down enough or they are not able to think and do the work of positive change. Right. Yeah, I agree with that. I've had We've had a number of people on our staff team yeah. take drugs for the short term. And sometimes they'll come and ask me beforehand. They'll say, Nick, is this okay? Like as yeah. a Christian, yeah. should I just be seeking the power of God for this rather than using medication? And yeah. you know, my response is always similar to yours. It's like, well, if you think the medication is the solution and you treat it as the savior, yeah, that's there's issues with that. But like, if you need to get calm down, right. get in a better place. If you feel this, this, this positive feedback loop where things are getting worse and worse and worse and worse, and worse yes. sometimes it's very helpful Absolutely. To, to use a medication to calm you down and Absolutely. do those kinds of things. And in some cases, it can save a marriage. In fact, here's a real unusual fact that I ran into lately is um, one, one, well, first of all, a little background, one in every five people is what we call a highly sensitive person, okay? Half of these people are men and half are women. But what that means, it's not a diagnosis. It's not a mental illness. It, it, it's a temperament, it, right? Temperament. It's a difference right. in, in character. But the highly sensitive, the other 80% of the population, let's say that at any given time in all five of their senses, they're taking in maybe... 12 units of sensory information. The highly sensitive person at any given time is taking in over a hundred units of sensory information. Mm-hmm. You, you, it's the highly yeah. intuitive people. I, I, I fear that I may be one of those people. Well, yeah, I may have mentioned that to someone who knows you. 
<laughs> I so, think someone I sleep with. <laughs> Yeah. Well, here's the thing: is is some of the um, theory of that. Is- I, I've made I've made peace with it. I actually th- I think of it as a benefit and as a gift. It now, is, but yeah. I I wouldn't have thought that I wouldn't have thought that. A while no, ago. it is, yeah. and the theory behind that is is they actually believe that these are people, and I'm one of these people myself. <laughs> you know, it most honestly, a lot of therapists are, but um, what they say is. Um, um, that we believe that God may, these are the people that God intended to be in leadership positions and as healers, which is not to say that everybody in these positions has these characteristics or, or needs to, but it goes pretty naturally because you feel things and understand things and can interpret and discern things at a level that the average person may not be able to because you're taking in more with your senses. Right. And I think where you're going with this in terms of mental health and medication is that that if you don't understand that and you don't have a certain kind of scaffolding around it, it's an overwhelming experience. Yes. Like you can be terribly traumatized when you're young because you're taking in so much and it's so powerful. And then if you don't know how to deal with it, it's overwhelming. And then sometimes medication just helps you bring down the sensitivity level a little bit. Yeah. So you're not going insane. So you can start to Work on exactly. And actually, Elaine Aaron, who is one of the gurus of, you know, for HSPs, highly sensitive people, she actually says, I highly recommend if you are super stressed out and you are a highly sensitive person for the sake of your relationship, try meds. <laughs> she actually says that. And she said, you know, don't let any doctor tell you that you have a mental illness or something else. It's your sensitivity. Yeah. Yeah. I had that issue when, because I was diagnosed with ADD, yeah. they gave me Ritalin, right? Yeah. And I took it and I thought I was going to die. I got my, oh. like my heart rate went crazy. Like I just like, oh. it, it was, it was bad. And I was like, I, this is not, this is not helpful. People um, misdiagnose and, that so often. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I do feel like I have all the symptoms of ADD, but like sometimes I wonder if ADD is a little bit like depression or something else that like the phenomenon has a lot of different reasons for existing. Well. Like someone who has really yeah. diffuse attention. So you could say, oh, they have attention deficit disorder because they don't have a threshold of attention focus that you consider normal. Well, but maybe it's, maybe it's like, I I mean, you'd probably say for a lot of kids, they have a terrible home life that's producing the phenomenon where they don't focus well. Yeah. And it, but that has nothing to do with it as sort of like a brain function or something. Well, here's what, yeah, there are different opinions on that. Um, but one of the latest things is, um, uh, Gabber Matei, who is one of the top gurus these days of trauma therapy his hypothesis is that what we now call ADD is actually something that, you know, smart and functional kids do in a lively, chaotic environment to take themselves to another place. Mm-hmm. So if you grew up with a lot of, I don't know, I mean, it could even be a household with a lot of, you know, very active kids, or there could be any number of situations. Obviously, dysfunction is is one of them. But he, um, you know, believes that it is, you know, you kind of, you space out or you, you know, your mind learns to kind of skip around in order to protect yourself. 
because kids are so super sensitive. Okay. So to get back to the original question, mm-hmm. um, were you saying that you had seen things in the, in the two, 2020 that you hadn't ever seen before that things are like a step up worse yes. than they've been? Yes. Yes. Um, in fact, I found my, my clients who were in a bad position before COVID started, like, you know, somebody who like say lost their dream job and it looks like their spouse is out the door or, you know, just a really bad situation and they were coping with it before COVID. Now they're suicidal and wanting to go into the hospital or something like that. I, I've seen more of that kind of thing than I've ever seen at once, the suicidality and also domestic abuse. And, and yeah, I, I heard crazy. that. Some, I heard that something crazy, like twenty five percent of adult males under thirty had contemplated suicide in two thousand twenty. Oh my gosh, Oof. I, I have not heard that, but wow, I I might believe that. You know, that seems that seems that's. It does, I mean, it's way higher than normal. It, right? yeah. Oh yeah, way higher than normal. Although it's um, a lot of young. Young men and older men seem to have, and I think a problem with that, and I think a lot of it is because it's it's hard for them to, you know, emotionally connect or admit they see it as a weakness, so they don't want to tell people what's going on until things are, have gone too far. I mean, that's a maybe a very simplified definition, but men are less likely, and this is a brain scientist will tell you this, that men men's uh men's brains are um uh very compatible you know with the female brain in that where most men are really strong most women are not and where w- most women are really strong men are not and one of the things that is typical of women is they notice things with health and relationships going wrong sooner than most men notice so like single guys actually have more problems and more health things because they don't have somebody there nagging them to go to the doctor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've heard that about men too. <laughs> that like one of the reasons men who are married live longer yes. is because they, there's a woman who's like, you need to go to the doctor exactly like, this week. You know, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, let me, let me cut to sort of like the heart of it question. This is the one Jill and I talked over that we think is people be interested in your view on, which is to what extent, so the way Jill worded it is to what extent do you think healing from past wounds is possible without knowing God? But I I think this is cognate to the question of how much healing do you think is possible in this life? Like to what extent is psychological healing possible and to what extent is psychological management what we do right like to what extent do you're like okay you have these problems i'm going to engage in therapy that will help you manage these problems and to what extent as a counselor do you say i'm here to help you heal that is recover from this problem well boy that's a tough thing first of all it's it's hard to put a number on it um sure but I would say, first of all, I don't know that we would ever promise healing 
to somebody. We can promise people that we will help them manage the system, the symptoms, and we can teach them skills. With that said, I have seen some pretty remarkable healing, but it would appear very clearly almost like a miracle, like God stepped in out of his mercy and helped somebody out. Sort of like a doctor might see, you know, all of a sudden the spot of cancer that was there and now it's gone, you know, and the person has really had a lot of people praying for them or whatever. But, but I, um, the other thing, when I was hearing that question, I thought of, um, I did not come to Christ till I was 30. So I don't know if it would be helpful to talk to you about, um, it was much, so I can talk about this kind of backward, what it was like for me coming out of a really bad situation without Christ, and then what a difference the Lord made. Does that sure. answer your question? Okay. Yeah, I think if it, I think if in it you you hit on that question, like what, to what extent yeah. can we pursue healing with God yeah. and through psychological means? Yeah, yeah. So basically, um, yeah, okay, so I have to start out by saying, and I'm going to make this just a brief description, you know, because this, this sure. isn't about me, this is about to, but I'm making a point. But um, I grew up in a family um, number four uh, with um, four brothers, um, and one of my older brothers uh, nowadays, he would have been diagnosed on the autism spectrum. He's he's mm-hmm. absolutely brilliant, but he was very violent and should have been institutionalized. But back then, if you did that, you lost custody of your kid. So he was not. Um, mm. So I suffered <laughs> beatings and other things I won't go into, you know, for about 10 years until I got big enough that I could defend myself pretty well or outrun him, you know? I mean, that sort of yeah. thing. Okay. So I went through, you know, had childhood PTSD and, and it started mm-hmm. at a young age. So um, I would be right in there with some of the toughest situations for healing that you might see. Um, and then in my early adulthood, I also suffered a lot of emotional abuse and at one point was almost murdered by an old boyfriend. I mean, it was attempted and I escaped. Okay. I had learned to run and duck pretty well, <laughs> you know, by that age. Yeah. So I, I got out of there by God's grace. Okay. So I not only had childhood trauma, but I had repeat trauma. So pretty much my whole life imploded by the time I was about 24. Okay. Um, and, mm-hmm. but then I, and, and at that point, um, I was a, single mom with a baby, which is not easy. Okay. At all. So I really had, had a a very hard time emotionally and whatever. And we did not have good trauma therapy at the time, but I will tell you one thing. Um, Even though I was not technically a Christian, I had been raised a Catholic and I, I didn't have a personal relationship or really felt directly connecting with God. To me, he was 
far off and sitting in his throne, you know, he's a nice enough guy, but pretty detached, you know, in, in mm-hmm. my view. Um, so I felt, you know, very alone. I was feeling very, very sorry for myself. But I will tell you the point at which I really felt I began to heal were two things. Um, number one, I stopped feeling sorry for myself and started trying to think about people who were in an even worse position than I was. And then even though I wasn't, you know, a born again Christian yet, I did pray every day. And this is like the next good step. I did pray every single day, Lord, send somebody across my path that I can see is unhappy or suffering and let me do something to make them feel better. And by turning away from my own self-pity and all of that and turning to look for other people who are suffering more that I could do something good for was a huge step in healing for me. Just that, you know, but do, would you, how, yeah. how much do you generalize that? Would you say, look, I mean, you just can't heal when you're in a victim mentality and when you're just so totally focused on yourself that both of those kind of lock you into. Oh, it, to- it totally does. In fact, the stats are, that about 20% of people, even with therapy and meds, cannot get out of deep depression. But what we know about the people who are stuck, we know two things. Number one, they have a victim mentality and they're blaming everybody else. They're, they're really stuck in their pain. And the second thing that we know as as a generalization with those people is that they feel that they have little or no power to change their environment. They feel like things happen to them, which to some extent is true for all of us, but there's really quite a bit over which we have control. Right. Right. Okay. So that happened in your life. Were you going somewhere else yeah, with that? That yeah, in terms but, of like healing from past wounds. Yeah, so then you, yeah. When I did come to Christ, I did, and thank God it was through through a coworker, you know, who witnessed to me, and I kept blowing her off because you know I just wanted to talk about more superficial things, you know, honestly. But then, then I, I uh, well, I broke up with a, a boyfriend that that. I had thought was going to, you know, wind up was the ideal guy or whatever. Now I'm glad, you know, that I, I didn't go there. But anyway, she invited me on a ladies retreat and I saw all these women who love their kids and love their husband. And I had been in this very worldly cutthroat business environment where people we're out drinking at night instead of home with their wife and kids. And, you know, there's the people having affairs and all this worldly stuff going on. And I saw all this love and I had been praying to God that that's what I wanted. And I saw, I went, these women have what I want. And so they invited me to this retreat and I told them if they witnessed me, I was going to jump off the back of the van. You know, so so big mouth that I have 40 minutes into the ride up there. They're reading the John 316 passage. And honestly, I didn't know what they were saying. But in my heart and my spirit, I went, these women to have their lives like this and speak like this, they have found the truth. And this is what I want. And so I accepted Christ. And and after that, my life was was 
I was no longer alone and trying to do things on my own. I knew that there was a benevolent God. I was part of a church community where there were all these old ladies who felt sorry for this young single mom and just would come up and hug me and be, you know, I just, I no longer, I felt like I had a community. I had a personal relationship with God. I could talk to him during the day. I felt he, he heard me, you know, he understood, he sent good things my way. Uh, It just was, was huge. So my healing greatly accelerated at that point. Now, I also needed, because of the gravity of my early childhood wounds, I still needed clinical therapy. But like I say, it wasn't nearly at the state of the art that it is now. We've only been really pretty good at this for about eight to 10 years, and we're probably not where we need to be yet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's Psychology is not that old a science. I mean, relatively speaking to the history of the world, you know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's still in its early phases. It's not even 150 years old, really, as a science. Right. You know, right, right. So, yeah. Um, so it sounds like from what you're saying, you would say that having faith in Christ has built in it a bunch of assumptions that are helpful for therapy, like oh, absolutely. if you believe in Christ, you can't have a victim mentality. You have to serve others. You have to look outside of yourself. Yes. You know that you have volition and possibility because you're made in God's image that if you right. if you understand Christian faith well, a lot of the preliminary mentalities of healing are built into the gospel. It sounds like you're saying something like that. You know, you you put it better <laughs> better than I did, but you're right. You're right on. I would I would agree with you. Yeah. You know? And then the yeah. sense of never being alone, always having an advocate right. in God's presence is helpful. Right. Also, there's like principles and stuff. Like if you're from a highly dysfunctional background, Christian faith offers both uh, principles of good living and also a community, a healthy community at which to get around to kind of some relearn yep. some of these social realities. Absolutely. And is present. Yes. So there's a lot of resources yeah. in healthy Christian faith, both internally in terms of your faith in God and the church has a lot more resources than most people would think. Absolutely. And like in the church, you can get a mentor, you can join, you know, uh, a care group, you, you get connections that just aren't out there in regular society in 2020, or not so much, you know? Yeah. So it sounds like one of the things you're saying is that there is a difference between clinical therapy relative to emotional problems and faith itself. But there's a inner working of resources between the two that without a certain amount of emotional healing and maturity, it can stunt your the growth of your faith. Yeah. But also there's a lot of resources that flow organically from having faith in Christ in that become immediate resources for your emotional healing. They won't necessarily heal you emotionally, right? but they are present resources that can be immediately applied with some help. Right, right. Which can really help your emotional healing. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you also have seen God just in the power of his spirit, just do healings, just like I break something open and free people from something. And they just really have a lot of I have freedom. from. Yeah. Yeah, I have. And, and, you know, as I had mentioned, um, when Jill was sending, you know, some questions, one of her questions was, on forgiveness. And uh, that was one of the most powerful and immediate uh, 
healings that I saw. And I have noticed just over the years, if I find someone really angry, usually they're carrying a lot of unforgiveness. Okay. Now, okay, some things take a while to forgive. But from what I've seen in my counseling, that as long as you have made a commitment in your mind to God that you are trying to let go of this, when the anger comes up, I mean, I always go to myself, stop, and then I pray immediately, Lord, help me, help me forgive this person. And then I try to get myself involved in in the next good thing, you would put it, you know, find a, a good, you know, activity and and distract myself because to keep rehearsing the hate over and over is very damaging psychologically and eventually physically. Do you feel like there are some Christians who forgive too flippantly? As like in in a sense too religiously, so they just go, oh, I forgive before God. I just I forgive, and they haven't even really totally yelled. This is wrong. This should not have happened. They have like they haven't they haven't accepted the moral gravity in its healing sense yet, and yet they're yet religiously they're already saying, well, I forgive that person, right? Like we talked about, we prepared for this the seven A's of healing, yeah, and part of that is like acceptance awareness that the thing happened anger that it shouldn't have right things like that that like you kind of have to embrace those and then forgive yes would you say that because how can you forgive if you haven't really seen how deeply you were hurt until you understand you you don't really even know what you're forgiving but what you're talking about i remember one time watching a tv episode where this mother's child had been missing and on posters and they found this six-year-old boy's dead body and here's his and I don't mean to put down any any person but here's his lovely mother up there saying I am a Christian I totally forgive this this monster she didn't say you know who killed my child number one that woman was in shock She has no idea. The only way she could have gotten up there is she is in a state of shock. She has not felt the deep loss and the anger and the emotions and everything else. And she meant well, but we can can make a commitment to God to begin the forgiveness process. And then I think of what Jesus says about forgiving 70 times 7. And sometimes I think it takes that many times to forgive somebody, especially if they keep doing the same thing over and over again that hurt you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, one of the things that makes me think about is like, you know, you want Christians to have a religious muscle memory that when somebody does something in the moment, they go, I, I'm going to forgive, not attack. Right. Like right. You want that, right. that muscle memory. So as for them to not take revenge. Right. So that, re- that forgiveness that is the restraint from immediate revenge, that's a good muscle memory thing. Right. But from a psychological perspective, yeah. you want to be like, okay, well, that's really good. You didn't take revenge in the moment. That's really good. Now, there is still an emotional process that yes. the legal act of saying, I release my claim on this person. Right, right. Which Jesus demands isn't the same thing as in your heart, really feeling the moral weight and the gravity of what's been done. Right. And then releasing that. Right. Like the, the anger and the hurt and, and the recognition and letting that go emotionally. 
Right. So that you can be free of it right. is like another step, don't you think? Oh, yeah. In fact, there's actually a, a document that I would have in my office. It's not right here, but there are, uh, you know, several steps. I forget if it's eight to 10 to the psychological forgiveness process. And the first part is that somebody did something to us and we are deeply wounded. And, you know, one of the next things is we have to realize that we are living in a sinful world and that these things are going to happen as much as we don't like it. And then the next couple of steps are actually for us to try to think what could have happened to this other person that they got to such a place that they could be so callous or so mean or, you know, that they could even do such a thing. So we have to actually try to think how they could have possibly done this and then come to some understanding before we can truly go, hey, maybe if I had been raised, you know, like that or whatever, maybe I would be in the same position here. And then to, you know, be able to to forgive. But what I've seen in my therapy is is that um, as much as a person may struggle to try to forgive, I really believe that God honors it as long as they are struggling and in the process. Where I have seen people get into real trouble is when they just dig in their heels and they go, no way, that person is a horrible person. They don't deserve to be forgiven, and they refuse to even make an effort. And that's, that's you know, I actually had sent a, I don't know if you want me to share that story about the, the woman in the, who was in you a can't, no, it's fine. Yeah, whatever you think is appropriate. group. Yeah. Yeah. Just to tell you the power of carrying a lot of hate and resentment in your body, you know, um, for many years is, um, when Dietrich and I started up the divorce care program at High Point, at one point, a woman called up and she said, you know, um, you know, can you still take somebody in the divorce care group, even if it's been a while since they've been divorced? And I said, well, yeah, you know, how long has it been? And she goes, 21 years. Okay. <laughs> so I'm, she's going, is it any use for me to come in? And I said, well, if you don't come in, it'll be 22 years and you'll still feel horrible. So <laughs> I said, let's try it, you know? So, so we invited her to come into the group. She went in and I think other people in the group would even say, you know, there's like 14 sessions and it just didn't seem, honestly, she was like, like she had just come out of the courthouse and really been, you know, raked over the coals or something like a month ago. I mean, she was just livid. Okay. So 14 weeks is over. The class ends. We take a break for the summer. Two weeks later, we get news that this woman was out walking her dog one morning and she dropped dead. Now she's around 50 years old. Okay. She and doctors examined her because you wonder why a 50-year-old woman drops dead no medical cause. And I believe she somehow poisoned her system or I don't know. I mean, you know, 
I don't want to presume for how God thinks, but maybe he figured she can't do much good still on the earth. I don't know. You know, that's a dangerous statement, yeah. you know, but yeah. But she dropped dead and there was yeah. no physical yeah. thought. Yeah. yeah, but that, I mean, that certainly seems very odd, right? I mean, like, yeah, <laughs> that it's 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 a it's a kind of chilling worth paying attention to, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. Okay, so let let's yeah let's move on. So um, so the so, so the point we're coming out of here is is that um forgiveness is actually a pretty critical part of emotional healing, and it's very one that's good. overlooked. Yes, and it's it's very critical. Yeah, and it's. And it's, it shouldn't be weird that what Jesus makes religiously and spiritually central as the most fundamental starting point of salvation yeah. would also be the most fundamental starting point of emotional healing. Yeah. They actually start yeah. in the same place. Yeah. God forgives us. We forgive others. Yeah. We give up our claim. Right. Yeah. And yet that's also how we start to heal. Yes. Right? Okay. So for somebody who is saying, okay, Nick, I, I'm trying to do that. I'm trying to do those, th- like what Jesus says, that we're not to judge others and condemn them, recognizing that like what you're saying, that like part of forgiveness is empathizing right. with the person who hurt you, right. that you, you don't excuse them. No, no. But you but you recognize that like their sin didn't come from nowhere. Right. right. Their sin came, like there's there's generations and there's there's yeah. a system and there's this ever flowing tied of sin and like this person was caught up in it. Yeah. Didn't take responsibility for it. And then, you know, they transmitted what they couldn't transform to me, you know, and I don't want to be that guy. Right. So, so they go through that process, but then other than saying, I forgive the person who hurt me, what's next? Like if, if somebody says, Sue, how do I, how do I pursue like in my daily life, emotional healing and emotional maturity? Knowing that there's stuff in my background that's hasn't programmed me right, how do I do that? Yeah, um, it's interesting. Um, actually, uh, is in Scazzaro's book, he actually says what is the next good thing that you can do, you know, for your emotional healing. Um, he actually recommends, he says, a genuine transformation begins with a commitment to feel our emotions. And I know there's probably a bunch of guys listening to this and maybe some women too who are going, oh no, <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you don't want to hear this. But everything we know um, first of all, God created emotions, okay? And they are energy. And you need to understand when you are feeling an emotion and how to handle it well in order to stop the pain. If you respond, you know, impulsively, you may blast out and you may ruin your personal relationships and you may get fired from a job or, you know, any number of, you know, <laughs> have your neighbors picketing against you. I, you know, any number of, of bad situations. Okay. And if you, but here it's almost worse. If, if you stuff your emotions, um, okay. First of all, I mean, it's almost like 
well, it, it's it's not helpful that four things can happen when you stuff your emotions. And most people are not aware of this, but it can lead to clinical depression, can lead to clinical anxiety. It is at the root of addictions and at the root of obsessions. So near as we can tell, God actually his plan was that when we feel an emotion, um, okay, I realize you can't stop everywhere that you are and do this. Like say somebody makes, you know, does something that makes you really angry. The first thing you do is try to, you know, take a deep breath, step back, stop yourself from the automatic response, which is going to be wrong. <laughs> you know, it's not the next good step. <laughs> okay. Um, and then when you get some time, actually the best thing is to, and I know this sounds weird, but it totally works. Totally works. You go off by yourself to a silent place and you sit. And when you are feeling a negative emotion, you will feel it in your body, often in your chest, Anger is often felt in the neck or the shoulders. And sometimes things are actually felt, you know, in the gut, you know, you have a gut feeling or something. So you are going to feel that. And if you sit there and allow yourself to feel the feeling without judging it, and I'll explain why later, but just like, oh my gosh, you know, and just sit, feel it and feel that feeling in your body. And I will tell you when I do this, there are a few things that I go, this feels terrible. I don't want to do this. <laughs> and I go, when is the time going to be up? But the average person can get rid of a really strong emotion in about 14 to 15 minutes. And when they've done research, if you actually do this, the longest in research that it's taken somebody to get rid of the bad emotion is about 30 minutes. So, and nothing has changed, but it's like, okay, I felt this, I thought about what I need to do, and now I'm back to peace. But we actually believe that God gave us emotions so that we think about it, think about what we need to do. We feel the emotion and then we can let it go. Now, the weird part is if you guilt trip yourself about it and go, oh, I'm a Christian, I should not be feeling angry, and you try to stuff it, then you're sitting there and you are feeling the anger and it is impossible for you to let go of the emotion because now you're caught up in guilt <laughs> instead of the anger. So, so you have to kind of just feel it and go, okay, I'm a human being. This is just the way I'm feeling. I didn't ask for this, <laughs> but I just need to sit here and deal with it until it goes away. Yeah. Do you feel like that le if you do that, that it lessens over time? Or do you feel like that's just what you have to do every time you have the emotion? Just a let it be. You know? Or do you feel like one of the things I tell people is I say, okay, because I, I say that. I say, yeah. look, you have to start when these emotions come up, you have to start yeah. feeling them. Yes. But then what I tell them is now you also have to let it talk. Mm -hmm. So. It's almost like you, you imagine just like have, have, you've set up tea, right? Yeah. And, and yeah. this emotion, anger, anxiety, yeah. something comes up yeah. and you just like your conscious mind, the part of your mind that yes. could, could try to control it. Yes. Actually, you sit down and talk to it, right? So yeah, you, you, you invite that. it in That's, and you, yeah. you sit it down and you say, so, so anxiety, 
hi, like have yes. a seat. Would you like yes. some tea? Actually, like, some people, I, w- I wasn't going to bring that well, up. So, so what's going on? You know, yeah. like, yeah. can you tell me why you're, why you're getting my attention? Yeah. Like what's. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, you're, you're totally right. And I, I know that I wasn't going to say that because I thought you might think it was too weird, but <laughs> No, but it's I, no, true. I do this. It's absolutely- now, I, now as a, like, as a Christian, the way I like Christianize it is I, I, I realize I'm talking to myself yeah, like yeah. this is, but, but I, I, inv- I mean, I asked the Holy spirit to yeah. come also, Yes, you know, and, yeah. but I, but I recognize that like, there's part of myself, the reason I'm feeling the anxiety, usually for me, cause I'm sensitive, it's yeah. anxiety. Yes. It's usually not anger. Yeah. And so the anxiety comes up. It's usually like a pain in my chest yeah. is usually what I feel, but there's four or five different symptoms I get. And I say, okay, the reason I'm feeling this way is because I'm not in integrity with myself. Yeah. I'm in a kind of spiritual and emotional yeah. denial. Yeah. And God created the primal part of me as much as he created the rational part yes. of me. Yes. And yes. My, part of following God and being emotionally healthy is actually all of those different parts of me working in harmony as much as possible. Absolutely. Right? And and your yourself with your rational mind that connects with God needs to be right. needs to be the one driving the car or piloting the plane and not right. these other, these other aspects of your personality. Yeah. 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 Even though like the way I look at it theologically is that, so one, one way that I, that I've been taught to look at it by people is that your quote primitive brain, what people like to call your lizard yeah. brain was mm-hmm. like your first brain. And then, you know, as yeah. we evolved, we got more layers and, yeah. But the lizard brain will like bite off somebody's face and you just can't let it do that. And right. <laughs> I, I agree with that um, to a certain extent. But part of it is the story you tell yourself about why that's the case. Is it just we've evolved from lizards that eat lizards and so now we're humans and we can control it, but it's always there? Or did God create my primal self similarly to how he created all of me? And yeah. sin has twisted my primal self just like it's twisted my rational mind. Right. My rational mind can come up with yeah. all kinds of justifications for my sin. Yeah. My my primal self is twisted in its desires too. Yeah. But there is a godly version of my primal self and a godly version of my rational self. And those two can come in union with each other because my rational my primal self isn't just the selfish gene. It's the true seed of my personhood that need that recognizes that as a physical being, I need a certain amount of security. Yeah. I yeah. want to be accepted. Yeah. I long for love. Yeah. yeah. And all those things, all those things are God given. They're just as bearing of the image of God as my conscious, rational mind. Right. So I, and so then I, so then I feel like I've been split in half by sin and by, and by, and by being wounded. Disconnect between our, you know, younger emotional parts and our, yeah. Grown up brain. Right. Yeah. Right. And and the division I I experienced in myself is I, I believe that what happened is, is that harms that came into my life before age 18, you know, um, challenged and made the, my primal self feel insecure, unloved too much and not enough at the same time, all those kinds of primal hurts. And my rational mind says, doesn't, didn't turn to God because I didn't know how and didn't do it. My rational mind said, I need to handle this and I'm going to handle this and, and did for 40 years. Right. 30 years. <laughs> right. And then at a certain point, I was like, I don't, my proud mind was like, I don't want to be controlled. I don't want you to tell me what's going to happen. I don't want you to force exactly. me. I don't, I don't want you to control me. I'm not your slave. I've been right. saying these things for 30 years. You're going to listen to me or I'm going to break this body apart. 
right? Yeah, there's, well, I could get into the whole thing sometime, probably not on this podcast, but what you're talking about is explained uh, a lot in internal family systems is, is the teaching and it is evidence-based. But we all yeah. have have these different parts of of our personality that can actually be warring, you know. Right. Like what? Yeah, and so that's why that's why yeah. I, that's why the metaphor I use. Obviously, this yeah. is a metaphor, right? It's a conceptualization. I think yeah. I'm going to invite my primal self yeah. bearing anxiety yeah. to the table and say, "Listen, I haven't been listening to you." Right <laughs> in my conscious mind, this is yeah. kind of what I say. I haven't been listening to you. Yeah. yeah. You've been trying to tell me something. I haven't been listening. Yeah. Now, I can't just do whatever you tell me to do, but I can listen to you and take really seriously what you're going to say, and then we can decide how we're going to go from here. Right. And then I can say, Holy Spirit, will you come in and will you help be the counselor in the mediating of this relationship I have even within myself? Well, and oftentimes, yeah. like well, then- when I get done journaling, I, I'm not just like, oh, I felt anxious. I don't feel anxious anymore. I know where that anxiety is coming from. I know a number of experiences right. that my mind is linked together to feed into that yeah. feeling. I yeah. like, yeah. and, and, and I've actually made progress. I haven't just released the emotion. Right. I have understood right. it true. more. That's true. That's yeah. true. Although, and I feel like that's the key, not yeah. just to, not just to like get back to my life and get away from that negative emotion, yeah. but also to make progress in healing. Yeah. Well, that's true. Although honestly, when, if you sit with the emotion, all of that thinking and the stuff kind of happens in, in your brain. It's, it's, it's sort of what we do in the trauma therapy when you, when you focus on the part of your body where the anxiety is coming up, whatever needs to come in and process in your brain does. But you're, you're absolutely right with what you are saying and talking about. And what most of us do is we say, ah, this emotional part of me is just messing up my life and causing all these problems. And we don't like it. And try to shut it down, which can make it want to raise its, you know, and even more. Yeah, it's not. No, we have to work with it and not against it. You're right. You're right. Yeah. It's like, like. Yeah, and I think I think to men, I would say yeah. two, I want to say two things. One is, um, God could have made men without emotions and women with emotions. Right. And he could have done that. Yeah. He he didn't. He chose not to do it. He wants men to have emotions and men are supposed to have healthy emotion. And then secondly, when I talk to people about dealing with these emotions, they're always, they they always say, I don't want to, it hurts too much or I'm too afraid. I know. Which means what's required is courage. Exactly. Now every, every man says they want to be courageous. Yes. And, and frankly, dealing with your emotional problems, the main thing that's required besides time is courage. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I tell people, oh my gosh, with the, the background that I um, grew up in, um, you know, in my twenties, I was scared to death of everything, but courage is not feeling no fear. Courage is feeling fear and, and having the courage to go forward and do the right thing, even though you're quaking in your boots or whatever, you know? Yeah, that's what real courage is. So that's how you build courage that, I mean, if you are a super paranoid, super fearful person, you have a wonderful opportunity to build courage because <laughs> you're going to have to use it a lot if you want to get out of where you are. Yeah. 
Okay, so let me let me ask you that that last question. So, yeah. um, what would you say to someone who says that they feel stuck? So they have these past wounds, they've experienced traumas, they see these same behaviors coming up again and again, whether they're sexual behaviors or whether they're anger or they keep sabotaging themselves in some kind of way. Um, and they're just like, look, I just feel stuck emotionally, but I also just feel stuck as a Christian. I feel like I grew a certain amount of my Christian faith, and then I feel like I haven't grown for like. I don't know, a couple of years and I'm still doing the same stuff. I read the Bible. I go to church. I, right. But I, I don't feel like I'm growing as a person. I don't feel like I'm growing in my relationship with God and my, and the problems in my life aren't getting less problematic. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, first of all, first of all, um, God created our minds to be very neuroplastic. Okay. And that doesn't end, it doesn't end when you get to be a certain age. I mean, you could have a transformation at the age of 85 or 90. Now, for most people, they're very comfortable in doing things the way that they always did. Yes. Sue, can you explain neuroplasticity? Uh, the, the, so this, the, this idea that your brain doesn't just develop and then it's like cooked and solid. Yeah. It's that like, it's plastic, it's flexible. It can like, yeah. It can you 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 can like rewire stuff and like actually have a different brain. Yeah. Like you, yes, you can. Yes, you can. And actually, one of the things that the brain scientists well, I'll, I'll explain neuroplasticity in a minute. But one of the things the brain scientists will tell us is if you are stuck in something, the best way actually to get out of it is to try to learn something that is very removed from anything that you would normally do. For example, if you never played an instrument before, start trying to play the instrument because your brain then opens up whole new pathways and ways of seeing things and connecting because you have to use your brain in a different way. But neuroplasticity, um, you know who gives an amazing demonstration of that is Dr. Caroline Leaf, who is um, a Christian brain scientist. And she goes around and, and talks at a bunch of churches. And she has a 20, 21-day brain te- detox. And it's a little thing, a seven-minute thing that you bring up on your computer every morning. So you are stuck. Um, she has you start with prayer and ask the Holy Spirit what you need to work on that day. And we know that change begins to occur Um, whenever we interrupt an automatic pattern at least seven times during the day. Like I'll just use, uh, um, let's say that, (laughs) I don't think anybody would hopefully lie this much, but say you're a chronic liar, okay? You don't have to stop yourself every time during the day that you start to lie, but if you at least interrupt it, you know, seven times and keep track of it, you begin to actually change the dendrites in your brain. Now, she actually shows a picture of how these are changing day to day over 21 days. And then you have to repeat it for a couple more cycles to get it headed in the right direction. But these dendrites in our brain are like a tree trunk. And let's say the negative parts are like really deep entrenched roots. But as you begin to face whatever you did wrong and stop doing it regularly, the roots get less and less and less. And she actually shows you a picture of that in her 
you know, 21 day detox, you know, thing. She shows you, here's what your dendrites look like at this stage of your healing. And after the 21 days, the negative roots are gone. And then you begin building in the positive direction. So that instead of reacting in the way that you don't want to, now when you feel that you are reacting your positive way, actually, and the brain has changed, will actually become your new normal, you know, after about 60 days of continually, you know, I, I remember one time you gave uh, an example in a sermon of going to one of those, those whack-a-moles, you know, at the, at the circus or something. It's a lot of what it's like when it pops up, you have to keep popping it down and then the brain actually changes as you continue to fight the behavior on a, on a regular basis. Well, Sue, I, we could pursue a lot of this stuff. Yeah. We're, we're a little, we've talked for over an hour. Yes. And so um, we, this is probably a good cutoff point, but we could come back around and do another episode soon. Yeah. Um, but I, hopefully there's plenty for people to chew on. I know that yeah. I kind of, I kind of want to do that 21 day detox thing. See how that, see how that goes. Yeah. That sounds fun. It, it's it's um, uh, pretty cool. I think you would really like it. Um, and I've had uh, a woman who, uh, Okay, she'd been sober for 20 years, and then she decided she deserved a glass of wine at a wedding or something, and she totally became drunken again. And so she came to me in great shame, and this was a key part of her healing is doing this 21-day detox. And then she began teaching the... Um, celebrate recovery at her church, you know, and helping, helping other people recover. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 That's great. So just to recap a, a few ideas um, from the podcast, one of the things you said at the beginning was it's impossible to be fully spiritually mature if you remain in a state of being emotionally immature. Right. That spirituality and in, in, in our emotional lives are too close together right. to ignore our emotional sanctification and think that we can have a really powerful spiritual sanctification. Right. You said one of the steps to um, to growing and healing is having a commitment to feel your feelings. Yes. Yeah. That you have to stop denying them yeah. and you have to let yourself feel them. Yes. You said that if you, you get like flooded with something like anger yeah. and your heart rate just gets up just physically, it takes about 20 minutes to come down from that. Yes. So like if you're having arguments with your spouse or you're, you're just getting in anger or something like that, sometimes you just got to stop and yeah. go away yeah. and give yourself some time physically to cool down. Yeah. Before you come back, sometimes people call it being flooded emotionally and absolutely to, yeah. to deal with that. Um, what else? We trying to think of some other good. Oh, the forgiveness. basic concept we talked about. Yeah, that forgiveness is fundamentally important as a first step, not just in spiritual salvation, but in emotional healing. Yeah, that's yes. really big. I also think you you said something like um, letting go of your victim mentality and yes. starting thinking about serving other people. Absolutely. Is fundamental to healing of every kind. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I think what. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to say, you know, about the whole forgiveness thing. That's well recognized as a powerful healer, even in the secular world. The UW Madison mm -hmm. is the site of an international forgiveness institute. Okay. Mm -hmm. And they study yeah. the healing power of forgiveness. So it's, and it's not yeah. just a spiritual concept. 
it's one of those things everybody knows that now, <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 And I think one of the things that for, for people, I think that there are, because of the history of the development of psychology, psychology with through, through Freud is some of the main, yeah. because of the, the early Viennese psychotherapists were highly atheistic and saw, and were, and were very anti-religious yeah. in the sense of their understanding of religious ideas. Yeah. I, people get in their, their mind that, that psychology has to be, or is in itself an anti-religious, highly atheistic discipline. And in, in its, in defense of that view, psychology does draw a lot of atheistic people because when you, you don't believe that the mind of God is out there, that's worth studying. The mind of human beings is a, is one of the most interesting things on planet earth. And it would draw the interest of, of mentally like interested atheists. Right. Yes. But also there's just so much that uh, that can't help but be known that's true about nature in our world in our minds and our consciousness yeah. that is in the field of psychology and yes. and there's and the the two should spirituality and psychology should have a natural relationship with each well, other. Well they they do and as I've learned in this field, you know, when I first came in as a Christian and I knew more about being a Christian at the beginning than I did about psychology, but Virtually anything that I learned about psychology, actually, you go back then into scripture and you go, oh, my gosh. Like when Jesus told us not to worry about things, worry creates ruts in our brain that make us, (laughs) it's harder to get out and cause all kinds of anxiety and can eventually, you know, result in, in a lot of physical illness even. So, I mean, you look at scripture in, in a different way once you understand, but it's all about how God made our minds and our bodies to work. It's just that we're seeing it in greater light yeah. right now. And I think it's important as Christians yeah. to say, you know, we don't do these things so that we'll be healthy mainly. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we do them because they're true and right, mm-hmm. but it's 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 perfectly reasonable that God would make what's true and right also that which would create what is blessed and healthy and good Absolutely. and flourishing. Yes. And so the idea that yeah. like if we do things that Jesus told us to do for spiritual reasons, for the health of our hearts emotionally, that it would do something good spiritually in terms of how we are broken in the curse or healed under it. Yes. I mean, that. God's good that God's goodness would be that unified shouldn't surprise us. I mean, that I know, I know like that would be very straightforward. Yeah, but I, I think there isn't a godless way, even for Christians, to pursue mental health or just yeah. physical health. Yeah, and yeah. not realize that like you, you'll get all that on the back end. Yeah, worship Jesus, yeah. follow him, yeah, do what he says, seek real spiritual growth. Yeah emotional growth in a healthy heart in God, and you'll get a lot of these benefits too. Right. right. But sometimes psychology will offer us tools that the Bible doesn't need to contain that are useful. Yeah. And it's not, it's not anti-biblical to use psychological tools. Right. And I think sometimes people get a little touchy about that, but you just have to use discernment like with everything. Yeah. But the, the weird thing about that is I go, okay, if you have a heart attack, you know, I mean, are are you just going to sit and, and pray over it and start looking up scriptures in the Bible? Or are you going to go and have a surgeon who understands how the heart works and can fix it for you? I mean, but, but people seem to see the emotional things in a different way. I think it's, it's maybe a next 
growth step for some people to begin to see that in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's probably, that's probably a very long conversation in itself, isn't it? I, the minute you said that I have like nine questions. <laughs> so yeah, Sue, thanks so much for your time. Uh, those of you who are listening, I hope that you've really enjoyed this. Um, Sue goes to our church. You can hopefully bump into her when more people are here and uh, things are a little bit safer COVID wise. Um, but I hope that you will use this to, to um, encourage you to pursue emotional sanctification, emotional healing, and emotional growth, realizing that it is part of um, spiritual growth. That when Jesus said to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, much of what the Bible talks about when it says heart and soul has to do with our emotional lives. And you, we just can't love God with all our heart and soul if we don't seek to be healthy and stronger in our emotions. So um, I hope you'll take this seriously. I hope you'll seek to grow in it. I hope you'll um, pay attention to the rest of the series, work through it, the devotional book, um, and also put in practice some of the things that you heard um, that Sue encouraged. See you guys next time. listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. You can find more episodes online at highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on most podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Overcast. If you are listening on a podcast app, hit subscribe to get notified of future episodes. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.